is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew, became a tree, and birds perched in its branches. Again he said, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like yeast. That's a woman. Now, this is a rather sexist comment. <laughs> uh, since uh, baking is surely a male and female, don't we? Exactly, you see. So, we, maybe we shouldn't mention the Great British Bake Off because it's caused such controversy uh, recently. So, maybe we'll stay away from that topic. But anyway, uh, it's like a yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. That's it. That's our text today. That's what we're looking at. What is the kingdom? What is the kingdom is the question that is so important. Oh, uh, I need uh, I need the, the PowerPoint thing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So, what is the kingdom? Mustard seeds, yeast, what's this really all about? How, what is the topic of the kingdom? I mean, I, I think when I talk about my faith with people that don't have, Christian faith. The kingdom issue is not the one they bring up uh, like as a big question. What's the kingdom of God? They, that's, I don't know about you. That's not the main question I get asked, right? But it's so important biblically. Uh, there are over a hundred references to the kingdom in the Gospels. Jesus talked about the kingdom a lot. And in fact, so did John the Baptist and Old Testament prophets as well. So it's very, very important. Let me ask us here if if uh, the mythical person on the street was to stop you and say, tell me, Governor, uh, what is the kingdom of God? What might we say? That what sort of comes to your mind from what you already know? Yeah, you know, probably some combination of the church and heaven. A combination, a blend of, of both church, physical, if you like, here, and heaven. Next. Something of this life, something of the next, something of this world, something of the next. Okay. Yeah. What else might we say? Yes. Living under God's reign. Living under God's reign. Okay. So, being citizens. Yeah. In that sense. Okay. Good. Okay. Anything else? Peace. World peace. Peace in the world. Yeah. We'd hope for that. If the world was under, fully under God's reign or rule, rule, let's put it that way, then uh, we've got to be, we should be beings. Okay. Well, if you do the label thing, it's, a, um, yeah, it's something which very few people get involved with, a lot of people who look on. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's true. Yes, good, thank you. Yes, sorry. Good. I'm not suggesting it's actually easy to define the kingdom in its entirety in a phrase or two because I think Jesus talked so much about it because it's multifaceted. There are many different aspects to it. Um, the Old Testament view, if you were an Israelite um, uh, in, in those days, um, you'd have understood that uh, the kingdom of God went beyond Israel's borders. And that was an unusual idea in those days. Most gods were territorial in the uh, days before Christ. And still in parts of the world, gods are territorial. They are the gods of that island or that gods, the gods of that city, the gods of that country, the gods of that territory. And so Israel's God was understood by the Israelites to have um, territory and reign and rule beyond the borders of Israel. And that's the confrontation between um, uh, 
uh, Pharaoh and Moses, for example, is about the fact that actually God is powerful in your kingdom, Pharaoh. You think your gods are the only ones that are powerful here. Well, actually, our God is powerful all over, including within your kingdom. And the tussle between Moses and the magicians of Pharaoh show that ultimately God has power even in territory that they don't think that Pharaoh, the Israelites, but the Egyptians don't think is his. So we get this idea from the Old Testament that is, his uh, kingdom is beyond uh, Israel or any national borders. Israel also expected a dramatic rescue. If you go back to the Maccabean period, which we'll talk about today, with the history of the Maccabeans and the idea that God was coming to rescue, the idea that the Messiah was supposed to come and rescue Israel uh, from the Romans at the time of Jesus, there's going to be something dramatic happen. It'll, it'll all be obvious and there'll be this amazing king like David who would arise, or a king like Solomon of great wealth and wisdom. And so this expectation was in the air when Jesus was around. In a sense, of course, from our perspective, that dramatic rescue did come. Only it was the cross, which was dramatic, but not the kind of drama that Israel was expecting at the time. So this is to some aspects of the kingdom. Uh, what Jesus says, of course, is that the kingdom is like a, a mustard seed. And being like this mustard seed, I've got more slides here. Let me just talk about these for a couple of minutes. Okay, so we've got uh, this idea. We've got the kingdom is a number of things. God's heavenly and eternal rule. I think we get this from scripture. His heavenly and eternal rule. Uh, his rule on earth in the obedience of the faithful. Cut off at the side there. Don't be cut off. Not good. Uh, God's rule on earth in the obedience of the faithful. So we got this combination that I think was in the orange. And thirdly, God's... Wrong button. Thirdly, God's future rule in the new age after Jesus. I think that's returns. And R for return. So, in other words, God's kingdom is not enforcing theocracy on the earth today. What's theocracy? Well, Israel focused, uh, functioned as a theocracy. God was their king, God was their ruler, and his rule ruled all their laws and everything. Now, in Islam, it's a bit like Sharia law, the idea that you have a law that everybody has to obey, and that's from God. That's the idea. The Israelites have a similar, similar idea. But Christendom has never functioned like that. We don't, we're not trying to build a Christian nation. And I, I want to say this because sometimes I think there's this... Uh, a mistaken idea that if we're just good enough Christians and we uh, uh, make the church big enough, that will turn Britain or South Africa or some country, Nigeria or whatever, into a Christian nation. There never has been any, any such thing ever in history and there never will be. Because God, Jesus is not interested in the earthly kingdom. He said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. So the kingdom extends into this world, has an effect in this world, for sure, and we do want to have a big effect, and we'll talk more about that. We can have a massive effect on people around us and on society. Christianity has made, had a, a major impact on many positive things in this world, but we're not trying to build a Christian nation. When people, politicians even sometimes, talk about th uh, building a Christian nation, uh, it just doesn't exist. It can't. Um, not everybody's going to be under God's rule, and if you try and enforce it, it backfires. Mm -hmm. If you think about Constantine back in the 300s, he supposedly became a Christian and then said, right, everybody in Rome is now a Christian. All Romans have to be Christians. What does that do to the heart? How do, where is repentance involved now? There were forced baptisms. He marched armies into the river so that they would be baptized. Uh, they had no choice. They were soldiers. They had to obey their commanding officer, right? 
Where's the genuineness of the conversions? It's not there. Calvin, later as a, re a reformer in the 1500s, tried to make Geneva the model Christian city-state. And so he made everybody obey the Christian laws, at least his interpretation of Christian laws, and tried to run it. And so Calvin was not only the main spiritual leader of Geneva, uh, he was also effectively the political ruler, and his, whatever he said went. But what that meant was, if you, had, if you wanted to do business, if you wanted to be a businessman in Geneva, you had to be a Christian. If you wanted to own a house, you had to be a Christian. So what do you think about the genuineness of conversions? doesn't work, right? There was a time in this country, in many countries, where if you wanted to get married, you had to be baptised. You weren't legally allowed to get married unless you were baptised. Now that was usually baptism as a baby, but nonetheless, you had to be baptised. So again, what does that do to the genuineness of the heart of conversions? It doesn't work. And so what Jesus is talking about in the kingdom is not establishing a political kingdom on earth. He's talking about something uh, very different in this regard. Um, what's Jesus been doing? He's been proclaiming the kingdom up till now as we've been going through Luke. He's not been explaining it, just proclaiming it. Here are some selections from Luke 4, 8 and uh, 9. What's he been doing? He's been proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. That's what he's been doing. Traveling around from one town to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Talking about the fact that the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom has been given to you. And some of standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. So he's been proclaiming the kingdom, but he's not been explaining it. It's from this point on that Jesus begins to explain what the kingdom is. And I'm going to give a brief summary of what, where we're going in the rest of Luke. Some of the key images that Jesus uses for the kingdom in the rest of this gospel, and we'll study each of these as we go through, are that the kingdom is like a banquet. A wedding banquet, a great feast, a great celebration. That's what the kingdom is like. It's something very positive, which I meant to that. Also that it belongs to the children, Luke 18. Uh, of course, in a sense, spiritual children, people with a childlike heart, a humility, that kind of it's the attitude that matters. Those are the people that get into the kingdom. Um, it's hard, he says, for the rich to enter the kingdom in Luke 18. That's tough. You can, but it's difficult. The rewards are wonderful. In Luke 18, and there is an expectation of work in the kingdom. The kingdom is not something you go into and then it's like, oh, thanks, God, um, it's all up to you now, and, uh, and uh, I'm just going to sit back and relax. When we're in the kingdom, we're citizens of the kingdom and we have work to do for God in that kingdom. So that's a bit more of where we're going. We're going to focus today on just this section about the mustard seed and the yeast, because this particular section emphasizes, I think, two main Things. One is that the kingdom grows by nature. The nature of the kingdom is to grow. That's it's, That's just what it does. The kingdom just grows. And secondly, that what looks insignificant has disproportionate effects. What looks insignificant has disproportionate effects. And that's true of the kingdom, but I think that is true of us who are in the kingdom and of the citizens of the kingdom. So, first of all, it's like a mustard seed. It's like a mustard seed, which of course is a very small seed. It's, uh, Jesus says it's very small, it grows to be significant. I have some mustard seeds here. Uh, you can have a mustard seed. There you go. Or you are welcome to plant these, um, or, um, well, I suppose you could eat them. I mean, if you want to. I don't know. I don't know. But, um, there you go. You could plant them in your garden or a pot. You uh, might do. Although I would 
there are a number of different types of mustard seeds, so this is one type. This may not be the exact type that Jesus was referring to, but you can see it is tiny. Compare it to a tree. It doesn't have to be a huge tree, maybe 12 foot mustard trees got to maybe about 12 feet in Bible days, somewhere between 6 feet and 12 feet, and it's in a garden. It's not, not talking about a tree that's in a forest, in a garden. That's why it is, it's the largest one in the garden. So you've got, you've got a 12 foot tree maybe. I mean, that's twice my height, roughly. Um, that's pretty significant. When you compare the seed to what it produces, there's a disproportionate effect. Starting small. I think the point is here, it's about starting small. Um, when you think about the, the way that Christendom developed, the way that Christianity developed, it started with a small person. Jesus was not only a baby, as in a small person, but he was insignificant as an individual. He just came from a, an insignificant family. Uh, he was not famous, he didn't have royal blood, he was not aristocracy, he was not from a famous family. You know, sometimes people from a famous background get a few advantages in life, don't they? Sometimes being born as someone famous might be seen as a disadvantage, but nonetheless it would open doors for you. Um, but for Jesus there was nothing like that. He was a small person from a small town. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Uh, John chapter 1, small town, not unregarded, not important. From a small nation, I mean, Israel in the time of Rome was not a major nation, it wasn't a major military force, it didn't have major resources, it was just a crossroads really. Any wealth in Israel at that time was just because it was at a crossroads of some important trade routes. So, a small nation. Um, a small people. Um, the small people here I'm referring to are not Diddy men. Um, I'm talking about uh, the people that followed Jesus. The, um, the, the people who he called apostles and the other disciples who were not well regarded. What does it say in Acts? It says they were unschooled ordinary men. They were just ordinary people like you and I. They were small people. They, they weren't important. They didn't have great influence. And small faith. The disciples were people of small faith, weren't they? How often did Jesus say, oh you of little faith or small faith? And they were afraid. And that's a sign of small faith. It's fear. And they were afraid in the boat, they were afraid in front of the Pharisees, they were afraid in the boat again, they were afraid. I mean, there was a constant thread in their heart, in their life. A lack of faith and fear, they were small people. And the early church. I mean, what did Jesus leave behind? After three years of the Son of God on the earth, working flat out, 24-7 it seemed like a lot of the time, after all that work and effort, the perfect, sinless Son of God, the Word of God in flesh, what did He leave behind? 120 people. 120 people in the upper room in Acts chapter 1. I, mean, I don't know about you, but to me, that would, I would think that was failure. 120? That's not very much. So everything's small. A small person from a small town, from a small nation, with small people following Him, with small faith, leaving a small church behind. It's important that we don't that we don't get disheartened when we think of ourselves as small. Whether you think of yourself as small, or we think of ourselves, plural, as a church, as small. That's not the point. The point, or the, the end of the matter, is not how small we are. The end of the matter is how big God is, and how the kingdom works, how the kingdom grows. That's what actually really matters. What is small, grows. If it's God's. If it's God's. If we are really God's in our heart. If we're really God's. We grow personally. And we grow collectively. 
and it would grow in number. <clears throat> the numbers are not the point, but that's what happens. That's what did happen in the early church. Great numbers of people grew to follow. Jesus grew to join and joined them. Uh, Acts 2 and Acts 4 and, and many others. And then it says in this parable that the birds of the air came and rested in the branches. And of course, that's an Old Testament allusion to uh, Ezekiel, Ezekiel 31 and Daniel chapter 4, where the birds uh, symbolize the nations of the world. And so the, bird, the, the birds rested and come to, to roost in the branches. They're the, they're the nations of the world now coming to enjoy the benefits of the kingdom. So what Jesus is saying is it's not just for you Israelites, and it's not just for a few people, it's for anybody and everybody that wants to come and know me and to be safe in the kingdom. When where birds roost is a place of safety. Birds don't roost where they're exposed, where they can be uh, at risk of predators by uh, smaller birds, by sparrowhawks, or, <coughs> or, or uh, other birds by cats, or things that might, they, they rest where, they, they roost where they're safe. And I think Jesus is saying, not the main point, but part of the allusion here, the implication is, it's safe for the kingdom. And anybody can come in. Anybody can come in to the kingdom. And so our lives should demonstrate that, shouldn't they? That it's safe for other people to come into our lives. Our homes, our hospitality, needs to be a place of safety. So that's the mustard seed. And secondly, we have the yeast. The yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 70 pounds of flour, that's 27 kilograms or thereabouts, that's a lot of flour. Might sound like that's rather more than you'd expect, but of course in those days you'd bake a lot of bread in one go, that's what you did. So it's a huge amount of dough and a, and a small piece of yeast. And a small piece of yeast works through the whole dough, it's placed there and it works. Small things can have a big disproportionate effect. That's where I need to help with my chemistry teacher. <laughs> right, now. Never done this before. So, let's see if this works. You think it'll work? Go on, chemistry. It's physically impossible. You think it's going to work? Yeah. Okay, we're going to find out. It's physically impossible because the chemical makes physically impossible. It'll happen. Anything, you know, it's gonna You're going to go for it if you do that. That's going to be good. Is it going to be good? That's going to be good. Uh, uh, uh. Is it going to be really that's, good? That's, that's going to be good. If you, get, if you get a good amount of the other. Yeah? That'll be good. That, that, might, that, that, might, that, might, that might be. That might be. We might be in the sky. That might involve the towel. I'll get the mop. That will definitely involve the towel cleaner. Yeah. Excellent. Do it. Excellent. Bit of salt? I hope salt. Good. Yeah, no, I'm going to spray your fence. I just go for it. I think it's not a holding back. Salt will hold it back. It's not going to fence. It'll make the taste nice. It'll make the taste nice. Just mix it.
vinegar. Right. Oh, hang on. Oh, the camera's yeah. coming yeah. out. Say it was nothing to do with me. Yeah, it was Malcolm's fault. We take the audio. I completely absolve Becky from any responsibility. I'm going to blame anybody. It's Dawn. She's the chemistry teacher. Okay, let's see if this works. It is shaky.
and it's still going and it's smelling like a fish and chip shop at the moment. Um, but I wonder, just to, it might be worth us all reflecting on how we really feel about our potential for impact for God in our world. What are the limits we place upon ourselves? Because surely it's us that place the limits upon ourselves rather than God placing the limits upon us. And I'm not talking about having some self-serving vision or just to make ourselves feel good like we need to be important. It's, it's not about that, is it? It's, it's about trusting God. And I think a lot of what Jesus is talking about here with his disciples is will they trust God that for what looks small will be valuable and important and grow if they give themselves over fully to God and trust him. I like this verse in Philippians, which is also slightly off the screen here. Uh, this verse, fully all of the words say, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Carry it on. God's work in us is carried on. It's not done. It's not finished. When we got baptized, we got saved. And that's wonderful. But that's not the end. We're not done. God's still got work to do to grow in us as well as grow uh, the church. And Paul says he's confident that God will carry this on to completion. It's work in progress. We're all, of course we are, very much work in progress. And later on, in the same chapter, Paul says, this is my prayer, this is the substance of it. This is my prayer that your love may abound more and more, so it's growing, more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness. I, I like that, that, filled with the fruit of righteousness. I don't often feel like I'm filled with the fruit of righteousness. I, I think I've grown in some areas in my Christian life. There are some fruits that are more evident in my life now than they were, I think. You can check with Penny what she thinks. But I think I'm a bit more patient than I was when I was 10 years ago, 20 years ago as a Christian. But there's some other things that are still not there, right? Or not often there. And I, I, I want to be filled with the fruits of righteousness. Well, that's a it's a process of growing that's not yet finished. Uh, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ to the glory and praise of God. So this is what happens when we give ourselves wholeheartedly to, uh, to being in the kingdom. The kingdom of God is found wherever God's people are found. Its power is revealed, as someone said, in the effective transformation of lives that serve as a testimony to the living God. Your life, my life, has been changed more than I sometimes remember. And that's a testimony to the living God. And that change, that change is a powerful one. We're different from how we were before we were Christians. We're different from how we were 10 years ago. It's a powerful thing and it's a witness, it's a testimony to the fact that, that God is living. And I think in the context where this uh, passage is, right after what's just happened earlier in the chapter in, in Luke 13, I think it's also a testimony to the fact that the gospel and the kingdom is available to everybody and anybody. Right before this, Jesus has healed a woman crippled for 18 years. He's released her from the demon that possessed her or affected her. And she's now able to stand up and be straight. She's a woman who was relatively marginalized in that culture. She was someone who was disabled, again, someone marginalized in that culture. She was someone who had no hope or future. Now that has been given to her. 
And this, then Jesus then talks about the yeast and about the mustard seed. I think, yes, you're welcome. You are welcome. You can be in this kingdom. You can be a full citizen. Any of us can be. It doesn't matter well, our background. It doesn't matter even our, not just what people say to us, but even the internal voice that says you're no good, or you'll never amount to much, or you, you're too this, or you're too that, you're too old, you're too young, you're too depressed, you're too... Whatever. It, everybody can be effective and can grow <coughs> in part of the kingdom. So powerful. Um, I think the seed and yeast encouragements from this passage would include these. First of all, I think Jesus would say to us, it starts small, that's the way God likes to work. That's just how he likes to work. He prefers to work from, with starting small. And if you look through the, the, the whole Bible, that seems to be how he works. It's a few, not many. It's the small, not the big. It's the weak, not the strong. And that's the way that God encourages us, but it's also the way that he gets the glory. It starts small, that's the way God likes to work. We started small. Not just personally, but as a group. We started small, and that's a good thing. It doesn't mean God doesn't have a lot for us to do and God won't grow it. In fact, it means if we are part of the kingdom, that it will grow. And we just need to have confidence in God and not look at the, not look at numbers. It's about what God will do. Another encouragement, I think, from this is that it's I, yes I, and yes we, can see many people come into the kingdom's safety. The kingdom is the safe place to be. This tree is the safe place to be. Yes, we can. Yes, I can help people. And yes, we can help come into the kingdom of safety as part of the yeast encouragement from this passage, I think. And then also, uh, some seed and yeast questions. What would make people feel safe? What would make people feel welcome? I mean, in our own lives, and the way we live in our neighbourhood, on our street, in our flat, in our workplace, where we bump into people, where we rub shoulders with people, the uh, other parents at school, the uh, the clubs or societies we belong to. How can we be in such? How can, how can we be in such a way that people can feel safe around us? That we accept them. That we actually really love them as they are. That we we want to help them. We want to be available to them. But they're a safe place. They, they, if they see us as safe, they will believe that the kingdom is safe. Some people aren't attracted to the kingdom. Aren't attracted perhaps to the gospel because they don't see Christians as safe people. If we can be safe people, they will trust that the kingdom is safe. Listening well, not passing judgment, showing unconditional love. There are many things that can help us to uh, be safe. Let's think about how we can be safe. And in what way can the truth we're talking about here about the kingdom help, help us to be more faithful? Because it's about trust in the end. I think what Jesus is talking about here is, trust me, it looks small. It is small, but it's important and it will be big. I think trust is the main thrust of this whole parable. Why do we know we can trust God? Even when it doesn't look important, impressive, when things look small, why do we know we can trust God? We know we can trust Him because of the cross. That's why we know we can trust Him. Because we know He has our best interests at heart. Always has. Always will do. Even if it doesn't look like it. The cross tells us that. We know we can trust Jesus because of the cross. We're going to take some bread and wine in a minute uh, for the, what we call the communion. This, and the bread and the wine symbolizes that body and that blood. The body that was broken and the blood that was shed. The, the body and the blood of Jesus shed and broken so that we can have access to the kingdom. It does bring us a relationship with God. And it does mean our sins can be forgiven. 
and it does mean that death is not the final answer, but it also means that we become citizens of the kingdom, we have entrance into the kingdom. That's why we, one of the reasons we take the bread and the wine is it's a reminder. It's a reminder of how much we've been given, of how amazing it is, what God has given us. Jesus' body was made to be broken, and the bread we're eating was made to be broken. Jesus' body was made to be broken for us so that we can feed on him, as we're doing in a moment, and we take communion. So as we pray in a moment, we'll, um, I'll pray, and then as we think and reflect in our own silence on what we've heard, perhaps I could ask us to think about the mustard seed and think about the yeast, and think about what What's the most significant part of that that we have heard today for us? What, what struck you? What made you think, gosh, I hadn't thought about that? And what's the relevance for our own lives? In what way can we better represent the safety of the kingdom? In what way can we trust God even when things look small and insignificant? God starts small, that's how he likes to do it. It's going to grow. That's the nature of the kingdom. Let's pray together.